0: Good evening. I am very pleased to welcome you to this Latrobe Asia event, Australia's Asia Pacific engagement, past and future. Uh, my name is Beck Strading. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University here in Melbourne. Uh, I would like to start the event tonight by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners. Uh, of the land upon which La Trobe University sits. And I would like to pay my respect uh, to their people both past and present and uh, extend that respect to any Indigenous Australians who might be joining us for this event tonight. So I'm really delighted uh, to be welcoming you to this event because we are celebrating uh, the release of a new book uh, called, and I've got it here, Australia on the World Stage History, Politics and International Relations. Uh, I'm particularly pleased about this one because I was fortunate enough to be one of the co editors with Benjamin T. Jones uh, and Bridget Brooklyn, who unfortunately wasn't able to make it here tonight. Uh, But Ben, in particular, uh, who is a very well recognised historian in Australia, was the driving force behind putting together uh, this book. And one of the real, I think, highlights of this book is that it is very interdisciplinary in nature, uh, by which we mean we have perspectives from historians, uh, from political scientists, and from international relations specialists as well. Uh, So this is really a reflection of Australia's identity on Australia's uh, foreign policy, on how it's conceptualized its place in the world uh, over uh, well before, you know, uh, colonisation to also include a number of chapters on Indigenous international affairs as well. So this is a really, it's like a passion project, I think, particularly for, for Ben, uh, but for, for those of us who were lucky enough uh, to come along for the journey. So uh, this is I encourage you. You can welcome to have a look at the book after after the event. Uh, but what we're doing tonight in the the Melbourne launch is to really focus on one aspect of Australia's international relations. So the book itself covers a vast range of topics and covers, spans the globe, Uh, but tonight we're really interested in focusing on uh, Australia's relationships in and with Asia and the Pacific. I mean, this is an area that is a perennial uh, focus of debates about Australia's foreign and defence policy and how it seeks to project its identity into the world and how it sort of feels its sense of place and in recent years We know that Australia's interaction with major powers in the region uh, has become much more complex. I'm sure anybody who's been following the AUKUS debates of late uh, are aware of that sort of complexity. Uh, So I'm sure we will be getting into some of those issues tonight. But uh, as Australia reconceptualises future directions in dealing with allies and neighbours and its position in Asia and the Pacific more broadly, what lessons does history offer us in thinking about that future? So what forces have influenced Australia's role on the world stage, both historically and today? What is the future direction of Australia's uh, foreign relations? And how should we reposition what we know about Australia's international relations and its Asia engagement for an increasingly contested future? So, with that, I am really delighted to be joined by our expert panel. And I'll begin by uh, properly introducing Dr. Benjamin T. Jones, who is a senior lecturer uh, in history at the Central Queensland University. And of course, the editor of this book, as well as uh, an author uh, of the introduction and one of the chapters. So, welcome, Ben. It's great to have you along tonight. Thank you. I'd also like to introduce my colleague at La Trobe University, Dr Michael O'Keefe, who is an international relations expert and a senior lecturer in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy. We were very lucky that Michael uh, wrote a chapter on Indonesia because Michael has also got a book coming out. Is out coming
1: in, in out
0: um, in August. In August, coming out a book on uh, Australian foreign policy, looking at strategic culture in particular, and again uh, a book that also spans the globe. But we're very lucky to have his thoughts on on you, Indonesia. So welcome, Michael. Too uh, we also have Dr. Nicholas Burns who is a research fellow uh, in history at Monash University and another contributor to this collection, writing on the Pacific. Uh, So we're really also grateful to have you with us tonight, but also that you uh, contributed to our collection, uh, a marvellous chapter, really important chapter on Australia's relations with the Pacific. So thank you. And certainly last but not least, we have a very good friend of ours, uh, La Trobeza, Wessa Chow, who is the founder and the CEO of Cultural Intelligence. Uh, And Wessa is joining us uh, as maybe as a bit of a discussant in the sense that Wessa hasn't contributed contributed a chapter to the book, uh, but is able to share her extensive knowledge on Australia's engagement in Asia. And so I'm really grateful that you have um, provided your time to join us this evening as well. So we will have time for Q&A in the last uh, 15 minutes or so of this event, Uh, but I think I've talked for enough for the minute. So I want Ben if you don't mind, to start us off uh, with a summary of the book. What did you have in mind when you started this project?
1: Thank, thanks, back. And uh, it, it, it's a deceptively simple question, what were the aims? Because we wrote it probably over three years and the aims uh, probably changed and developed over those points. So I ended up... Um, no not allowed PowerPoints there, so you. you'll never take my <laughs> notes. So I uh, jotted down uh, five, that I think, goals we were trying to get out of it. And the first one, as you alluded to, was being interdisciplinary. And this was a real strength of the book, I, I think, compared to more traditional histories or traditional uh, sort of IR analysis of Australia's uh, relations with other uh, nations and even... At, uh, we had this informal symposium where we talk about our abstracts and just the different questions that get posed uh, by historians to IR uh, experts, the different approaches they take to considering Australia's past and its possible future, I think uh, made it a far richer book, and I'm sure my chapter and the other chapters were richer for bringing in, uh, for busting out of our um, our discipline silos and uh, and engaging with each other. A second aim was to have a real First Nations focus and not a tokenistic one either. And we're really fortunate to have uh, two very talented Rajuri authors and they bookend the first part of the Uh, part one of the book really nicely firstly Laurie Bandlett Uh, you know when when does Australian foreign policy start when does Australian international relations start Uh, he goes back and just really um, beautifully recounts the complex uh, customs and rituals and uh, the sophisticated diplomacy that was happening among First Nations on what's now the Australian continent, but also what we'd call international trade as far as uh, Macassar and the Pacific Islands. And uh, and that rich culture then is bookended really nicely with James Blackwell's chapter, who finishes off that part, uh, who's really pioneering a, a new space in IR debates about First Nations diplomacy. And so th- that, that was important for us. And then a third uh, aim, I, I think, is one that uh, really you were quite passionate about, back, and uh, really strengthen the book by challenging the binary that often comes up about dependence and independence and, you know, as if buying a couple of submarines can suddenly make a nation go from being sovereign to not sovereign or dependent to uh, independent and... Uh, th- trying to offer a more nuanced uh, analysis of why Australia has acted on the world stage uh, the way it has without trying to sort of put it in a box one way or the other. And uh, two more, bear with me. Uh, so challenging uh, teleology is another one in the sense that this idea that Australia was sort of destined to firstly even become Australia in the way that we know it today and, um, Pointing out the, the myriad of different Australias that could have happened. And then that goes to the last aim, which is to prompt questions about looking deeply at Australia's history and the way it's engaged on the world stage. What could be done differently in the future? Are we happy with the strategic direction that we're going? Uh, something that you know James Blackwell may prompt you to think about. Should it be Part of our diplomatic norms to have a First Nations representative on trade envoys, on diplomatic missions, and what other ways can we can we learn from First Nations? So, um, uh, hopefully, that was short enough. But. <laughs>
0: No that was uh, that was excellent uh, and it's you know an interesting sort of uh, set of questions around AUKUS because in some ways you know it does raise issues of sovereignty. We're hearing a lot more about um, sovereignty in a kind of international relations context over the last week or so, Uh, but it also raises interesting questions about Australia's relationships with the so-called great and powerful friends. Obviously, uh, Australia has a strong uh, alliance with the United States, but I think for, for me the surprising element is this sort of the UK is, it's a bit sort of back to the future in the sense that um, Australia is is deepening these defence ties uh, with the United Kingdom. And so this is why, I'm, you know, I'm glad that, that you're here to talk with us about this because, um, at, you know, at the Trove Asia events, we don't often actually talk very much about the United Kingdom as a player uh, in the Indo-Pacific, but your uh, chapter and your expertise is really on Australia's relations with the United Kingdom. Uh, so could you tell us maybe about um, what Australia's relationship with the UK has meant for Australia's regional relationships?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the best lines in the book, I think, is from Paul Pickering in the forward where he notes that Australia, and this is in light of going back to Uh, the the UK Free Trade Agreement and then also AUKUS and he suggests that Australia has gone uh, back to its old habit of hiding behind the ample trousers of a bumbling Etonian Prime Minister (laughs) and uh, of course he was referring to Johnson but by the time the book even went to press that was two Prime Ministers ago (laughs) and that tells you something about the inner workings of the British Conservative Party but uh, also raises the question why does Australia turn to the UK so readily and so easily, and my chapter, uh, it's sort of part two, Uh, Bridget writes about Australia and the UK from Federation to World War II, and then I go from World War II to the end of the century, and the conclusion I draw is that the relationship is, if not strategic, not entirely strategic, but it's also a highly emotional one, and I chart it from... 1954, which is this high watermark of Australia-British relations and the high watermark of this outpouring of adoration and devotion uh, to the Queen with her first visit to Australian soil. Um, And then it finishes with a failed Republic referendum. And it seems like an odd uh, ending. but Of course, that's what happened. But throughout the 60s and 70s and 80s, you have Australia strategically shifting uh, to the United States for... Uh, security and to Asia for trade. And so it, it poses the question, well, why did Australia vote no uh, to the Republic referendum, which is something I'm thinking a lot about at the moment, since my next book is going to be on the Republic referendum. But it, it strikes me, and I argue that during especially those key decades in the 60s and 70s, it was more the case of Britain strategically moving away from Australia and Australia having to make rational strategic decisions about its own future in response to British policy, rather than uh, having this moment, and it certainly wasn't curtain saying look to America, uh, this moment where it asserts uh, its own uh, independence. And I finished the chapter with a line saying that the, after the failed referendum, the language of Britishness has gone, but the privileging of Britishness remains. What I mean by that is Australia no longer celebrates Empire Day. Australians no longer refer to themselves as uh, British subjects and Australian uh, Britons. But you only need to scratch a little bit beneath the surface and see there is still, still a deep well of strong emotions, and you only need to raise something like changing the flag to see how deeply this uh, attachment to at least uh, symbols of Australia's British past still are. I once um, debated uh, uh, Campbell Newman on Sky News, which was a pleasant experience, and um, about the flag, but what was interesting was after all the, you know, the bluster about changing history and all that sort of stuff, Um, he sort of huffily sort of said, I'd rather become a republic than change our precious flag. And I thought, well, that's interesting because the republic is at least a constitutional and legal and I I suppose a concrete change, whereas this is sort of pure symbolism of still wanting to be able to look up the flagpole and see that there's a sign of our British past. And so I'm I'm sure I'm already over five minutes, but uh, just the... uh, The imagery in the same way that Newman looks at that imagery and sees that British flag. I think while some of us may have cringed when seeing Johnson and Morrison, um, you know, swapping a a packet of Tim Tams for a thing of Johnny Walker, which incidentally Morrison got the better deal out of that. um, And and with all the the carefully staged managed stuff about AUKUS and the flags in the background and all that stuff, I think it does present an emotional comfort, not just in the political class and some of the more gung-ho US alliance and AUKUS supporters in the media, but I think among average Australians as well, that there is a well of emotion that approves of that kind of imagery and that may be part of the explanation why, despite perhaps doubts over Britain's Uh, economic strength or its ability to even give these subs why it still gets a a thumbs up from a lot of Australians.
0: It's really interesting. Uh, And, Michael, I wanted to draw you in here because your chapter was on Indonesia and Australia and Indonesia has, you know, a rocky relationship historically, uh, historically complex, I think we could say. So uh, in your view... How do we make sense of uh, this relationship between these two neighbors? What's the best way of conceptualizing? You know, because often you, there are these sorts of um, like it's almost like a roller coaster. There are these sort of moments of tension, but then things seem to get back on track or normalize, and then something might come along to, to kind of disrupt it. Uh, what's your take on Australia's relationship with Indonesia?
2: Thanks a lot, Beck. And before I answer that, I did want to uh, thank you and, uh, and Ben and Bridget for conceiving of this project, because uh, the interdisciplinary nature of it is essential to why I think it's such an important piece, because in international relations, we usually focus on, on the last dramatic strategic change. Or liminal moment. It could be something like September 11 or the end of the Cold War. But what you challenged us to do was actually look through back through the march of history and try and detect patterns um, which allow us to make much more sense of what's going on today, of Indonesia's response to August, for instance, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. Um, so from that standpoint, the, the dynamic that you're talking about, I describe in the book as a dynamic of slight escalation. and escalation. Uh, and it's one that really highlights the the dramatic difference, the the enigma in relations between Australia and Indonesia. The fact that the neighbors, other than Papua New Guinea, of course, but the neighbors are so close, yet are so far apart in so many ways, by almost every measure, politically or culturally, the distance between Canberra and Jakarta is immense. And those those are the differences that I detect and I talk about in the book, and I think are the best way of explaining it. We may want relations to be uh, closer, and we have all the, the theatre uh, that we, we see with the other relations. So, you know, we, we, if we remember Albanese and Takawi and the riding bicycles in um, the presidential palace um, and this, this high level of warmth between political leaders and, um, and warm declaratory policy. But underlying it, there is so much distance between Australia and Indonesia that we don't see the creation of, of something akin to friendship. And that's what the Johnny Walker and the Tim Tams are about. Um, It's about these displays of friendship and kinship. Um, And that goes back to my my view on on Australia's strategic culture and the fact that the birth of Australia, um, its colonial past is so different to Indonesia's. Um, You have a country that is born sort of almost begrudgingly and gifted independence in 1901 versus a country that um, that is dominated by uh, a colonial power and fights for its independence. Very different beginnings. There was a very good opportunity at that time for close relations because Australia and the cabinet supported Indonesian independence, even against the great and powerful friend um, who didn't want that. But from then to today, there has been this seesawing relationship um, where we see almost benign indifference punctuated by fractures in the relationship and those fractures are often on questions of sovereignty and um, and slights against indonesian sovereignty um, we don't have to look further than let's say the the uh the crisis that occurred in, in diplomacy over uh timor Leste to see um, where a fracture can occur and how it can completely undermine and destabilise relations. Uh, we haven't heard much of West Papua for some time, and that's because the Australian government has become much more in tune of the potential fractures. But August actually also has the capacity to drive a wedge in relations just at a time when Australia would like to be building much closer relations with Indonesia.
0: Well, I think that's a good uh, time for me to ask you about um, the Indonesian response to AUKUS. Um, from, from sort of my uh, understanding or my reading, uh, you have, uh, there are definitely, there, there are some parts of Indonesia uh, that are concerned about nuclear-powered submarines, uh, concerned about um, things like non-proliferation, but then at the same time, only a couple of weeks ago, there was, you know, a a defence cooperation signing and that seems to to be a bit symbolic of Australia's relationship with Indonesia. on, On the one hand, there might be a seeming kind of fracture, but things might be continuing to operate beneath the surface. So I'm wondering about your take on Indonesia's responses to AUKUS uh, and 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 the, the submarines.
2: Thanks. I'll, beneath the surface um, is right because <laughs> this is this is this is this is um, a, a really good case study and one that um, that uh, uh, tells us so much about relations, as you say. So so. We have a situation where geopolitically the region has changed dramatically and Indonesia, uh, a firm member, founding member of the, the non-aligned movement, uh, being very interested in, in not being entangled with great powers throughout the Cold War um, and, and wanting to main, fiercely maintain its independence. But at the same time, Indonesia is growing And Indonesia is no longer the power it was in 1955. Indonesia is becoming more confident and Indonesia is also facing China, particularly to its north and then between the sea. And Indonesia is making decisions for itself and its strategic culture um, where uh, it's spending more on defence. It's even purchasing uh, US uh, defence equipment um, and it's recognising that it needs to protect its sovereignty more. So the same... Um, fractures that Australia has had over sovereignty, there's now the potential of much greater cooperation between Australia and Indonesia facing north, facing, you know, as Machiavelli's, your, your enemy's enemy is your friend. So Indonesia and uh, and Australia looking north together in a way against China. But then, as you say, Beck, at the same time, Underlying that Indonesia's principles and its support for non-proliferation and its view of not wanting to be too antagonistic, particularly towards China, um, cuts across that attitude. And so Indonesia, it's unprecedented to see Indonesia operating the way and Malaysia, of course, has done this much more often. Um, but being critical of Australia, being critical of AUKUS, um, elements, as you say, in Indonesian polity have directly said that it's it's about aggression and war fighting, uh, not for, for peaceful maneuvering and other things. And of course, any Australian vessel moving north. Um, has to move through, if it's gonna move easily, um, through one of the straits um, within the Indonesian archipelago. Those choke points have been very strategically important, including the, the, the first time um, and hopefully only, only time that Indonesia and Australia squared off in a, in a military conflict um, in the Malayan emergency um, when, the, when Indonesia closed those borders. And Indonesia is now threatening to do the same thing uh, with respect to the nuclear submarines. And suggesting that they are destabilizing for the region. So we have these interesting dynamics going on in Indonesia where we can see some maybe tension in their polity, uh, but we can also see that Australia has to be incredibly careful in the way it faces Indonesia and explains to Indonesia what its strategic interests are um, and how they connect to Indonesia's interests.
0: Yeah, I think there's a real value in in looking back, looking back to the past, because things have not always been easy between Australia and Indonesia, and and we forget about Confrontasi at our own peril not that long ago that we're actually facing off. And the blockade where you are just talking about the closing of the sea lines, I mean, that's really um, important kind of historical context for what's going on now. But also it's not just uh, Indonesia that that Australia needs to explain some of its decision-making to. It's also uh, other countries across the region, including uh, the Pacific. And, Nick, your uh, contribution to this book is focused on the Pacific Islands, with, with Helen as, as your, your collaborator as well. Uh, but one of the, the sort of, the I guess, the overarching theme of your chapter is this concept of sub-imperialism. Uh, so I'm wondering, because, you know, there's been a lot of attention paid on Australia's relationship with the Pacific Islands, uh, and, Michael, you could talk to, talk to the this as well but um this is you know it's seen through the lens of great power competition at the moment like you know it's driven by concern about china and and whether or not china's going to get a military foothold but australia's relations with the pacific historically have been quite complicated as well so uh, i'll pass the microphone yes. over now
3: <laughs> yeah complicated is is an understatement in yeah. many ways and, and and I guess the, the sub-imperial idea, to, to sort of answer your question as I had the microphone upside down, it goes back to sort of the early, I think it's 1980s, a book written by Roger Thompson, who sort of outlines Australia's policy in the Pacific in the late 19th and early 20th century. And, and for him, he frames Australia's sort of relationship with the Pacific Islands, focusing partly on Papua New Guinea and, and, and um, other islands, Fiji, etc as Australia sort of engaging in some of its earliest foreign policy uh, behaviour. even And he was responding to a literature that sort of suggested Australia didn't really have a foreign policy until, you know, the middle part of the 20th century. Before that, what Britain said sort of went. And the sub-imperial idea revolves around the notion, I guess, that Australia kind of acted on behalf of the British in, in the region, um, demonstrated perhaps by the fact that in 1906 Australia is... I guess, given Papua, which is the sort of southern half of of what is today Papua New Guinea, uh, by the British and and governs it as a colony until 1975, and then Australia gains the northeastern part and Nauru after the the First World War, which were German colonies, which was an earlier form of sort of great power rivalry, if you will, resolved very differently with just lines being drawn um, on on maps. Um, I guess to sort of bounce a little bit off, off what Ben was saying. But the sub-imperial idea, though, I think can be complicated by the fact that Australia and Britain didn't have the same interests in the region, that, that Australia was a much more interested in, in, in Papua, you know, for a, a defence shield at the very least. There were also economic interests in, in parts of the Pacific, such as Fiji, the sugar and, and, and Nauru with, with phosphate, although that was governed alongside um, Britain and, and New Zealand. But I think that it, it it demonstrates an example of how Australia sort of you know was able to to sort of um, demonstrate its or, or exert its power in a region where really there were no sort of you know competitors in, intimately involved in in the area. Um, the idea has been revived. I think there was a recent book last year, Clinton Fernandez wrote a book called sub-imperial power, which, you know, attracted my as a historian of the, the sort of, you know, first half of the 20th century, and he doesn't really talk about that too much. But he frames it a little bit differently. He, he obviously projects it into the, the 21st century and, and presents Australia as a sub-imperial power rather than a middle power in the context of, of the US alliance and, and so on. And he kind of frames it in a way as Australia, I guess, relinquishing agency, if you will, that, that Australia accedes to the alliance with the United States, at acts in accordance with with you know US wishes and so on, and in so doing, perhaps sometimes acts against its our, our interests or Australia's interests. Whereas I think the earlier conception sees Australia being emboldened to act in its interests in the region. And I think you know there's a subtle difference there that might be worth just sort of yeah thinking about that region.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, this is all. There's also this this question. I mean. Penny Wong uh, did a speech recently uh, in in London where she talked about um, states needing to grapple with their colonial past, and I think some uh, some some commentators in the news sort of uh, thought that was ill advised to make those comments in in London. Uh, but I think you know it's an important question when we're thinking about relations with Pacific. Uh, island states, particularly because there's concerns around, you know, paternalism about being, you know, Australia um, thinking that it knows what is best for what are sovereign countries in in the region. So um, how does Australia sort of grapple with its uh, colonial, does it need to grapple with its colonial past in order to sort of uh, build these genuine partnerships with Pacific island states?
3: short answer is yes, it it absolutely does, as a historian of Australian sort of colonial rule in in PNG and Nauru, the the Pacific, more broadly. And I want to sort of now link to to what Michael was saying. It's me trying to sort of connect the talks in a way. But it was interesting that when you talk about Australia's colonial history, you were talking about Australia as a colony of Britain um, and sort of dividing that from, from, uh, say, Indonesia's history, which, which is obviously very different. But that ignores the fact that Australia was a colonial power as well, not just in terms of settler colonialism and and the the sort of um, obvious dispossession of the Indigenous population in Australia. But Papua New Guinea was a colony until 1975 of Australia. It was a trust territory, but that's a euphemism. It was a colony of, of Australia. And so was Nauru until 1968 in a much more exploitative, extractive um, um, relationship that Australia benefited um, uh, ridiculously from, from cheap phosphate um, throughout the 20th century. And I think that there is a tendency to kind of forget that. I, I mean, I don't think I was taught that in schools that Australia had colonies in, in Papua New Guinea. It took me, you know, to, to learn this. and And I think that there's sort of, Tendency to bring it up. I know Anthony Albanese did sort of comment on it when he spoke recently as the first foreign prime minister to speak in the uh, the, the National Parliament of Papua New Guinea, which was a big moment. It's an interesting moment of, of an Australian prime minister going into Port Moresby and, and speaking there but to go to the paternalism point i think it, it it sort of the language that gets used i think is really interesting in this case and in that speech the the and the, the sort of you know exchanges back and forth were not so much friendship but it was family the the language of family gets used in in terms of australia and png but also other pacific nations as well um, and one of the arguments that that helen and i had in the chapter is is sort of separating Australia and New Zealand and how they relate to the Pacific, that New Zealand can be seen as a, a part of the Pacific world, that, that you know, the, the sort of Polynesian um, background and, and the fact that it was, you know, colonel, settled by, by the Maori population only a couple of thousand years ago, whereas in Australia it, there's a sort of separation. Um, Australia sort of engages with the Pacific rather than is of the Pacific. And I think that, I think enables these paternalistic positions to be held because there is a sort of degree of separation that's there that is then facilitated by wealth disparities, power disparities and things like that. And so you then get when, say, AUKUS comes up, and we can tick that off the bingo card, I'll mention it as well, that recently or, you know, on, re- on his return, Anthony Albanese dropped into Fiji, negotiated, and, you know, it was, it was the, the conversation was after the decision was made. It was we've made this agreement here are the things we can do to sort of work with it. And I think that's there is still an ongoing tendency in that, that Australia acts, you know, whether there are disparate interests, uh, different interests in terms of climate change, nuclear power, um, all sorts of, of areas, that Australia still sometimes perhaps forgets that, that you know, these places are sovereign nations that should be brought into these conversations and so on before the decision is made rather than after something like that. Thank you.
0: Uh, yeah, and Wessa... Uh, there was a report that was uh, released, I think it was last week. it might have been uh, the week before uh, that was from the Australian uh, Academy of Humanities talking about um, it was specific to uh, China and australia 's uh, knowledge about China and the sort of capability gap uh, that exists in this country about understanding China Uh, but I wanted to kind of broaden that out to think more about Australia's knowledge of of Asia I mean we're talking about Asia-Pacific here Uh, but you know thinking about um, what Australia uh, needs to do, what it can do to try to improve, it. you know, the knowledge of citizens about the region in which uh, Australia inhabits. So um, how and why is it important <laughs> that that capability gap is resolved? I mean, I know that you've spent a lot of your career thinking about these issues <laughs>
4: Thank you, and and just a little bit of fun fact um, that uh, I've just been I, I just heard over the weekend that uh, nuclear submarines can't get into Victorian waters. <laughs> so, um, so so it's an interesting fact for for Victorians, given that we're talking a little bit about that. Um, but I guess I'll. Um, just thinking about, you know, some of the conversations that we just had around our connections to the UK and um, our, our past as well, I think this year, especially when we are having a re- referendum on The Voice, I think that becomes quite an important, um, I suppose, uh, uh, bit of history that we need to think about and If, for example, um, the the Yes campaign is able to, you know, know, uh, be able to pass in this particular referendum, then it's almost like a reset um, of Australia's identity because I think um, then we can start to actually really think about, well, what does it it mean for Australia in in the world when we um, accepted, you know, some of our, our past so I think that becomes quite an important aspect. Um, and, and with that, I also want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the world, uh, traditional <laughs> owners of, um, of the land and pay my respects to the elders past and present. And also acknowledge that the land will always be Aboriginal land as well. Um, so I think that's... Probably the first aspect. Um, and if we are able to have that reset, then we can start thinking about Australia being less of reliant on the UK. Um, and having our, our identity to be much more multicultural. So if we think about, and, and today is also Harmony Day as well. So um, So thinking about Australia being um, a a country of uh, people from different cultural backgrounds, we need to be a lot more, we need to actually be thinking about how do we use the um, talents that we already have in Australia. We've got a lot of people from different migrant backgrounds, they have a lot of connections, um, cultural understanding um, of, uh, of you know, whichever country they're, they're from. And, of course, with the report that's just been launched um, by the um, Australian Academ- Academy of Humanities around Australia's chi- China capability, we actually don't have a lot of people who spend time really, you know, do, do our research and understanding of other countries. And I think that needs to improve um, just as a nation and have a conversation about how that can be done. And it's not just China's capability as well. It's also about the rest of Asia. People kind of assume Asia is China. That's not necessarily the case. Um, There's a lot of, you know, intricacies and, and nuances as well. And the other aspect I do want to talk about is also understanding the culture um, just means that we can understand the nuance of the culture a lot more. So it's not just, I mean, I remember 10 years ago, everything China is good, trade is happening, everything is good. And then now everything China is bad. Um, you know, everything about China, if you look at the news, everything about China is bad. So we need to find a way to understand well what aspects of it is reasonable and what aspects is problematic and so we can have a conversation about well what how do we actually um, engage with different countries um, and without that understanding it's it's impossible to do it and sometimes i do say especially with the chinese language it's quite a practical language and sometimes I read the news and there had been a translation of a story um, and it become a rhetoric. And I read the um, original transcript in language and it's like, oh, it, it doesn't sound as serious as it, it was reported. And so, and I checked it with other people as well and see, am I just, you know, being a little bit, Uh, less sensitive to you know what people were saying and other people who understand the language was commenting the same thing so it's about these intricacies that we need to understand and when we start to report on the news that we know okay well these are things that is concerning and we need to be concerned about it and do something about it but then there are other things that's just reasonable and it's just the nature of it and perhaps is a way of actually educating Australia as well about what is actually said.
2: Can I I just echo that in with respect to Indonesia because we also see the elite laid focus on language and culture the Asianization of of Australian foreign policy in the 1990s um, which then has faded and collapsed. Mm. And so Bahasa Indonesia, there was this massive growth and interest in our most populous near neighbour, which has almost collapsed in, in this same time frame. So the same lack of cultural literacy exists with Indonesia as it does now with China.
0: I think that's a really important point that you make there, is that that was in the 90s, you see investment at the top level. And without that, it's very difficult for universities to keep Things like language programs or Asian studies, like cultural um, uh, disciplines, going uh, without that real sort of top level policy support. Uh, But was it just back to you? I mean, given given that context, how do what does the Australian government need to do, in your view, uh, to improve relations uh, with states across Asia?
4: Um, I think there's. obviously I mean I kind of touched on it before as well that we need to recognize some of the talents we already have in this country and that is a lot of the people from different cultural backgrounds they have the knowledge and understanding Um, but at the moment um, there's a lot of sensitivities around it and therefore it's quite difficult for some people um, from different cultural backgrounds to actually reach into senior roles. Um, and there is quite a lot of um, discussions about that already. And I think the conversation needs to happen a lot more um, because we need their knowledge and skills, but then if they don't get security clearance, then it's hard for them to get into roles where they can be in 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 those decision-making um, um, levels. Um, and that's really important. So we can't we can't say everybody from Chinese background is problematic, and therefore we shouldn't trust any of them. Um, so we need to really, you know, find a way to make sure that um, that we 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 do uh, create more trust and find a pathway for people to actually. Um, I mean, many of them actually do want to contribute to Australians. Um, policies, but then they're just not given the opportunity. So I think we, there's a lot of talents that we currently have um, and we just need to make use of it. Thank
0: you. Uh, We have some time for questions of our panellists. I would um, also point out that I haven't spoken about my chapter on this panel, but I've also written for this book and my uh, contribution was on Australia's relationship with the United States. So nothing big to cover off in uh, in my chapter, but uh, that was an interesting chapter to write because I actually wrote it before AUKUS was announced uh, and then I was, uh, you know, I was pretty happy with the the chapter. And then this big announcement came out, and I was uh, kind of quite happy to to find out that this was um, a development uh, that really just uh, fit well with the chapter or the trajectory of the chapter, which is basically I'd been arguing that Australia was becoming increasingly close to Washington and that Washington was also becoming increasingly close to Canberra. And so in some ways I was like, well, this is just a sort of another step along that path, that that trajectory. Uh, And I guess when it comes to thinking about Australia's uh, relationships uh, in Asia, Asia and the Pacific, uh, that the key in my view is to try to ensure that uh, Australia uh, is paying enough attention to regional partners, that it isn't always about. United States or isn't always about, uh, you know, nuclear-powered submarines, but that it has a foreign and defence policy that is diversified, uh, that is sufficiently diversified uh, in in that it can uh, also, you know, continue to put resources into those crucial relationships. Uh, And so in in some ways, the the, uh, relationship with uh, the United States, as Ben mentioned in in your introduction, it's really not a question of uh, being a dependent ally, as Coral Bell put it, or being uh, an independent kind of state, it's actually a complex relationship between those two things. And what I think we see with AUKUS is that there is a a compromise of sovereignty for the promise of security in the longer term. And these are the sorts of trade-offs that middle-sized countries often need to make. But um, I will stop my contribution there uh, but there is a chapter on the United States in the book but I'm going to invite people in the room for questions.
5: I was very interested when you were speaking about how New Zealand is um not separate from the region. I think that's I, I'd never actually thought about it in those terms and it, I, I really do agree with that. In terms of Australia do you think with the, re- the recent AUKUS announcement and the formalization and the pageantry and whatever you want to call it on, on stage. Um, do you think we've now made our decision to be separate? Is, is this kind of the defining moment where Asia perhaps will look at us as wanting to be separate? Like uh, I've lived in uh, mainland Southeast Asia for quite a while and um, a lot of my friends have jokingly been texting me, uh, you pretend to be our friends, but we knew you were British and you were fake all along and, you know, you put on this face, oh, we love Asia and da-da-da, but they're your real friends. Like we were just convenient you know it's kind of like at a house party and you have your 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 friends that you just met but then your real friends come and you quickly go over so i was just wondering what you thought about that
0: <laughs> that's a really interesting question uh, uh, any other questions while i'm
1: yeah you yeah. mentioned that australia has a fear of uh, sovereignty why is that so
0: and um, uh, not so much a fear of of sovereignty but um maybe we can uh sort of unpack some of the issues around, I mean, I think all of our panellists probably have something to say on the sovereignty issue, so we can go into that as well. Um, any other questions while I'm holding my, I do know that we have another question that I saw come in through um, the, the online Q&A about Indonesia and about um, Indonesia's military leaders. Uh, So maybe, Michael, that is one for you about the role that military leaders play in Indonesian politics uh, has historically uh, uh, been uh, quite significant and whether or not that is um, changing or whether or not there's still quite an influential political role for for military leaders. But uh, maybe, Ben, I'll start with you uh, I'm sure you've got some thoughts on the sovereignty issue and new zealand
1: yeah well just on the fear of sovereignty then that, that's such a fascinating way to phrase it i'm <laughs> not not sure I disagree because it 's a historic trend that you know right back through the colonial period it's um you know it's a country nourished on self doubt and nourished on uh, on on fear of invasion and um Uh, I really loved uh, how Wessa phrased as well, the uh, referendum on the voices uh, potentially being a moment to reset. Mm. And for some of us, that might be a really exciting thing. But I think for others, that is a huge fear. And Mm. especially with the 99 referendum, that was sort of the same idea that this would be a big reset and... The Republic movement tried, um, their whole strategy was around saying, no, this is a small, safe, uh, little thing. And they purposely wouldn't say anything about First Nations, wouldn't say anything about the broader meaning of becoming a Republic or being sovereign and tried to make it this really small, safe target, uh, which, of course, didn't work. But I I think the ARMs learned a lesson from that, Um, hot off the press, actually, just Today, I think, or yesterday, uh, uh, Nova Paris has been named co-chair of the ARM with Craig Foster. So it's the first time an Indigenous woman's, uh, or any woman actually, has held um, this blokey organisation for 30-odd years. Um, And it has an uh, Indigenous advisory panel as well. So I, I think there's sort of two the the republican and and reconciliation and, and the voice they're sort of two sides of the same coin but i think they are a reset movement and part of the fear and part of the no campaign isn't just no against them on their own merits but it's also fear about what well, does that mean then australia is truly alone that we are finally getting rid of the great and powerful friend sort of prism and, move, and having to ask hard questions and move into a, uh, a different space. So I think that's where some of the fear comes from about, well, what, what would be next and what would we do and what would Australia look like if we didn't have, you know, a little Union Jack in the top left.
0: Can I stay with you just for one second, because we do have a question um, in the the online chat about do you think that repatriation of war trophies is integral to moving forward with diplomatic relations in the region? I wonder, do you have anything to contribute to that one?
1: Uh, well, other than personally, I think, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, and all sorts of uh, not just war trophies, but um, uh, Indigenous objects uh, all around the world should be uh, repatriated Uh but also, I think, apart from just being the right thing to do, in my opinion, I think it, it does, it would significantly improve Australia's reputation and its soft power and its ability to be, um, to be taken seriously, to, to not seem like um, the, the fake friends, um, you know, any steps uh, which seems like it's actually putting substance towards its claims that, you know, uh, we're actually decolonising ourselves by uh, getting rid of the British monarchy and we're uh, trying to reset um, in, in how we engage with the nations in our region.
2: Thank you. Um, I've got my, my view of Australian strategic culture that I argue in this book is actually the continuity is, and inertia are the most powerful forces. So I don't see a, a reset. I don't see friendship with Asia. And in all the narratives, um, going even back to Keating, you know, we weren't accepted into ASEAN. We, we created this thing called AIPAC. Um, we're not a Pacific island nation, and we're also not an Asian nation. And that legacy of colonialism and, um, and the empire, that little flag in the top corner, is so incredibly powerful. And so when Beck started this by saying AUKUS, you know, how amazing it is that it's AUKUS. It involves the old great and powerful friend and the new great and powerful friend. I find that amazing, but not at all surprising. Yeah. So um, so I don't think, and, and in my chapter on Indonesia, I, I, I do focus on the fact we're just, we're not friends, and the, and the trappings of friendship, or even in the Pacific of what it would be to be equals and respectful relationships and reciprocal understandings of that sort don't exist. Transactional relations. And it may be transactional in trade, or it may be now with security with China. So um, so yeah, it's a, a contrary rue, but, um, but I see that, that, uh, that there's been so much stability in that view. And it's even if we've become more multicultural, that underlying racism and the threat where is the threat located? To the north, from alien Asia. And it has been since before Australia became Australia.
0: Just before uh, I hand it on, it's just that there's been a clarification about the repatriation, about PNG in particular. So I'm wondering whether you have
3: any thoughts on that. Um, I haven't really thought too much about that. The, I mean, aside from from Ben's point, that I think it's the right thing to do. And I think that that there is a... Again, the, the sort of the acquisition in inverted commas of of um, certain traditional objects and so on um, are just another example of a colonial relationship. That that's that's a sort of a, a very common trope, and I think that there is something to be said for the way in which Australia can I don't know cultivate the relationships with with these places is through acting in ways that demonstrate understanding of, of what it is to be a friend rather than sort of imposing an Australian conception of a, a, a friend or a, a when I say Australian I mean really an Anglo sort of European Australian conception of, of friendship um, which then links I think into, into your question um, which has sort of been, been answered in a lot of ways and I agree that anxiety and, and fear have kind of governed how Australia looks at, at the sort of region to the, you know, north, west, sort of east, all directions in many ways. Um, and I think that geography is, is a crucial thing and, of course, the, the sort of British colonial history plays a, a really important role. And the the episode that comes into my head that sort of speaks to, to the question is, is in the 1960s there was ongoing conversation about what would happen to Papua New Guinea? What, 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 what is decolonization in Papua New Guinea going to look like? And one of the, the options on the board, and this was in keeping with the UN sort of has three, you know, you sort of become incorporated into the, the, the sort of nation, Free Association, which is sort of the Cook Islands sort of approach or independence for, for PNG. And that brought up a conversation about statehood for Papua New Guinea. Which was never taken seriously, which I think speaks to the point that there is an assumption amongst um perhaps people in in um certain areas that or assumption might not be the right word but there was a hope perhaps might be a better word of people in png that that you know australia would would accept um this you know eight million um melanesians into the 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 population and australian politicians it was never going to happen It it was immediately put down we will never have you know the seventh state will not be be Papua New Guinea and I think it's it demonstrates a kind of a perception of the people being over there and I think that mindset fits whether we're talking about Papua New Guinea whether we're talking about Fiji whether we're talking about Indonesia um, or China um, or Vietnam as it was in the the sort of 60s and 70s and still today so yeah I think I, I think you're right I think that's definitely the case
4: um, yeah, so I guess in terms of, you know, thinking about sovereignty, I actually find it really interesting when we talk about, um, you know, whether or not there, there is a risk of war, for example. I mean, we're surrounded by waters. We, I, I find it really, um, I think it's very unlikely that we, we're going to have people next to us to be, you know, starting any wars with, with Australia, unless you're talking about a war with Wales or I something, mean. <laughs> um, which I don't think is going to happen. Um, and and our and our neighbours are uh, people in the Pacific, you know, in in um, Southeast Asia. Um, and I mean, if you if you talk about great powers, it's not going to be any of these nations. Um, but if you talk about, you know, uh, what's going to happen with China, and obviously we don't know what's going to happen over there, but the sovereignty issue—I mean, if you—you'd you, be thinking about potentially um, cyber warfare or you know other forms of warfare. Um, so um, even just thinking about um, the, the the new submarines, well, how does that gonna Help us when you know we're talking about other other forms of you know um, conflict with with um, with with other countries. So I think it's actually quite an interesting conversation when we when we think about these issues, um, and and what it also does is it also creates um, suspicion with a lot of people from different cultural backgrounds, um, suspicion with the Chinese community. I mean, even just last week, I was helping a group of Chinese students um, with, with a racism case. Uh, because of the Red Alert series that was pre, um, presented in, in, in the news. Um, so these are things, these are rhetoric that can have serious impact within the community. And I, 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 uh, when I was talking to people about it, it's like, well, before we actually see warplanes above our heads, I think there'll be more Chinese students being assaulted in our streets quicker than when that happened so I think we need to be aware of that um, when we want to you know talk about um international relations we need to be really clear about how that might impacts on the community here who has no responsibility to a government you know to, to another government
0: well thank you very much uh, and for those of you I have one final question. Uh, Yes, I'll bring you the microphone. I think we can squeeze one more in.
2: Um, I just wanted to get the panel's opinion on Penny Wong's performance over the last couple of months since she's been in office um, in the role um, and the role she's going to play in the next couple of years.
3: Yeah.
0: Okay, if we can keep it brief, we might go slightly over time, but uh, evaluation of Penny Wong as Foreign Minister,
1: Ben. Uh, Well, if we have to keep it brief, I I think she does very good on a personal level and, uh, and it looks good for Australia as well. Uh, but she's, of course, uh, a member of a major political party and a, the major political party has made a decision on AUKUS and so she has to uh, back the party line. So I I'd, suppose I'd just put a little bit of differentiation between her personal performance as a politician um, and, and maybe the decisions of federal labour.
2: Um, just echo that. I think um, Penny Wong's job is to to further Australia's national interest as defined by Canberra. And shes I think she's done a fairly um, exceptional job at that in the short time she's been there, particularly with the re-engagement with the Pacific. So um, we may not agree with Australian foreign policy, um, but but I don't think there's much to criticise Benny Wong's performance in that regard.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that, you know, for all of the potential cynicism that was coming through in some of the things I was saying about how, you know, Australia kind of engages with with the, the Pacific region, I think that one of the first things she did was to sort of try and recast what what that relationship looked like. And language plays a big part there. And I think her language did, did change. And I think... That it, you know, it was a step in the right direction. Really, if you if you think about it, there's a long way to go, and I think she's aware of that. And I I think it's it's quite early to tell. And yeah, I what others.
4: Now, after a bit, I'm completely biased. I love Penny, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I guess. I think she's done a really good job in terms of um, changing the narratives. Um, to, I mean, even just after the the Labor government came uh, into power, uh, the rhetoric and the community feeling of racism has has kind of not. Down a little, which was really good from the community perspective, um, and and of course you know there's still a long way to go to actually rebuild that relationship, but I think we stabilize we stabilize uh, what we can.
0: Thank you very much. And as I was uh, going to say before I saw uh, your your hand go up, we actually do have an event on Thursday night um, that's being produced by Ideas and Society. Uh, and that is, uh, I will be hosting it and I will be, I'll be joined by Hugh White and Sam Roggeveen. And that will be specifically on AUKUS and Australia's defence policy. So uh, that'll be a, a 90 minute deep dive. <laughs> so, to speak. <laughs> you cannot do maritime security without puns. It's just they, are, they just come out. It's impossible not to do it. But uh, So please join us for that one. And we are also, uh, I'm glad that you asked this question, because we are um, also planning an event in May to sort of evaluate Labor's first year uh, in terms of, of foreign policy. So uh, keep an eye out for that one. Uh, please uh, follow us uh, on Twitter at La Trobe Asia or join Join our mailing list so you can find, uh, you can see some more of our events throughout the year. But thank you uh, for joining us. Thank you for coming and celebrating the fact that we have this new book out in the world, which we're very excited about. And thank you for those who have joined us online as well. Uh, Good night.